0: Hi, ladies. Well, welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I love being with women who study the Word of God together. So welcome, welcome. Now, I know it's um, not a surprise to any of you, but we had a presidential election a year ago, didn't we? And we're all familiar with what happens when a new leader emerges. Every new leader has a new message. Every new leader has a new message. And if you're a student of history, you can remember some of those new messages from the past. You might recall that Franklin Roosevelt's new message during the Depression was called the New Deal. And John Kennedy's new message during the Cold War was called the New Frontier. As we continue the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Jesus doesn't have a snappy slogan, but he does have a new message, doesn't he? He has a new message for the nation of Israel that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, God's message to Israel had never changed, but over the centuries, Israel had changed, hadn't they? Over and over again, they continually rebelled against God, and they rebelled against every prophet that he sent, the great prophets of Israel. But now the stage is set. We saw that last week when Lynn was here teaching, uh, talking with us. We saw uh, Jesus' protection We saw his baptism, we saw his temptation in the wilderness, all that was setting the stage for the king himself to bring his message of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God to his people. So we're going to follow along this morning as the king steps up and what he does is he calls Israel to a new life, a new heart a new righteousness, and a new way of living. And we are going to rock and roll this morning because we have a lot of uh, things to cover. So read with me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea... Uh, beyond the Jordan the Galilee of the Gentiles the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so Jesus begins his new role of as Israel's king by moving you know we start new uh, things in our lives by moving sometimes too but he relocates now to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy he moves north to Galilee after a time in the wilderness and his baptism in the Jordan you might want to look at that later on your map now it doesn't talk about Capernaum here in the prophecy, does it? It talks about Neb, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, and these were Old Testament names um, that were closest to what is called Galilee in Jesus' day. He moves to Capernaum from Nazareth, uh, it's just a short distance away, and Capernaum is a um, a well-known city on the shores of Lake, of the Sea of Galilee. So it would be strategic. And after he moves to Capernaum, we see Jesus' ministry begin with the words, from that time. You might want to circle that in your Bible because those are significant anytime we see those. From that time signals um, from the time that John was arrested and Jesus moves to Capernaum, from that time, He begins his public ministry. He begins to preach uh, publicly and his message was the same as John's, wasn't it? His message to Israel had not changed. It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need Israel to turn from your rebellion against God and recognize the arrival of the king and the kingdom. Now... While he was preaching in Galilee, Jesus does uh, something that the rabbis of his day actually did. He calls his own following, his own group of disciples. This wasn't an unusual thing to do for rabbis, and he does that in um, beginning in verse 18. Read with me. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. You know, Matthew's focus here really is on the authority of Jesus. Notice how he speaks here. He speaks as a king calling his subjects. He doesn't uh, mince words here. He doesn't say hey, you guys want to hang out with me for just a few minutes? He calls as a king, calling his subjects, and these four fishermen actually respond exactly that way. Now, probably they knew who Jesus was. They may have encountered him if they had been followers of John the Baptist, and certainly they've heard uh, rumblings about his teaching and who he might be. But even if they already knew who he was, this is a Pretty remarkable scene I think Matthew writes that Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets now that's something fishermen would never do these were tools of their trade they were valuable they were expensive they wouldn't have just dropped them and walked off and James and John did something even more remarkable They left their own father. They got out of the boat with their dad and just walked off. I imagine that was some dinner table conversation later on. We don't know whether um, the father uh, actually knew who Jesus was or had some inkling that this was going to happen. What we do know from looking at Jesus and these four men there is that these men walked away from everything that had been important in their life. They walked away from their work, from their livelihood, from their possessions, and from their family. And they did it to obey without question the call of the king of kings on their lives. And you know, Jesus had the right to do that, didn't he? He is the king of kings. And when he calls, his subjects have no choice but to obey And as these men began following Jesus, he preaches um, with them at his side to huge crowds that the kingdom of heaven is real and in their midst. And as he preaches, he heals every type of disease and infirmity that's brought to him, and that validates his claim that they haven't made a mistake in following him. He is the king that called them out of their everyday, ordinary life. He validates his role as king by performing miracles that only the king of heaven could perform and accomplish. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me in chapter 4. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now this is a pretty dramatic introduction for the king and his kingdom. It's not just like a snappy slogan that you see on a billboard somewhere. Um, and I think his followers, these four men and the others that he called, had to have just spent every day with their mouths hanging open. They had to have been stunned at what they heard him teach and preach and what they saw him do as he healed so many incredible illnesses. Uh, Now, I don't know what your experience with Jesus has been as your savior. Maybe he called out to you when you were just a child um, attending church or in Sunday school, or maybe he called out to you as an adult. That's what he did for me. Maybe today's the day that you hear Jesus say, follow me, and you get the opportunity to put down your nets and get out of the boat and go with Jesus. But regardless of where any of us were when he called us, all of our lives were changed, weren't they? When we answered that call from the King of Kings and said yes to Jesus, we hear truth like we've never heard it before. I had no use for the scriptures until that day. And then I couldn't get enough of them. We make different choices after following the king of kings, don't we? Just like these four fishermen, the things that used to be important to us now seem much less important in our lives. Paul talks about that phenomena, um, that new life that we get after we follow Jesus and get out of the boat um, in his letters to the Corinthians and the Colossians. Look on your verse sheet with me, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Colossians, Paul says, uh, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. These men are a testimony to following um, Jesus when he calls, changes our lives forever. Fishermen become fishers of men when we take off that old self and put on a new Now, we just finished uh, the Christmas season, and one of the commercials that fascinates me every Christmas, and they kinda play it every Christmas, is that commercial where there's a new car parked out in front of someone's house with that giant red bow, and then the whole family runs out in the snow um, on Christmas morning to get this um, new car with the bow on the top. Does that really happen? has anybody in here gotten a Lexus on Christmas morning uh, with a big red bow because it hasn't happened at my house so talk to me I want to know what it uh, happens but when I saw that commercial and I was studying this it really reminded me of what Jesus is doing because he is pulling up um, in front of the nation of Israel with this message of a new king and a new kingdom and it's got this shiny red bow on the top. He's been validating that gift with that red bow on the top by performing miracles throughout the region. He's trying to give them an incredible gift. It's waiting to be opened. Um, But just like that new car that those people open the doors and get in and find out all the bells and whistles, Jesus has more to tell them about this great gift. He wants them to understand what is inside that great gift. And so he gathers some of his disciples and he sits on the side of the mountain and he begins to teach them. So look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 with me. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for... Now, right here in chapter 5, we begin just that famous sermon of our Lord Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. It actually goes clear through chapter 7, and Deb's going to be here with us next week to continue the Sermon on the Mount. Um, He was on an unknown mountain in Galilee, somewhere near Capernaum. Nobody really knows what the locations were. And theologians have all sorts of different thoughts here about who his... Um, audience was when it says it was his disciples. I must have read 15 different things that described it but basically it boiled down to it could have been his just his 12 disciples or a portion of those 12 disciples that were already with him full-time. It could have been um, the Crowds that were following him, a portion of them considered themselves his followers. And when they saw him go up the mountain, um, they followed up there with him. Or it could have been... The 12 disciples, and then after he began to teach and people discovered where he was, then some of the rest of the crowd would come up and sit near him as well. Um, After reading all of it, I think that's what I'm going to go with. But the bottom line is no one really knows exactly who he's talking about here with the disciples. Now, everyone that was listening to him, that they name as disciples here, I think has one question in their mind about this kingdom that he's been talking about. And I think that question is, okay, I hear this conversation about the kingdom, so how can I be a part of that? How can I be a part of the kingdom that you're offering here? You know, the people that they were familiar with as religious leaders, the people pious behavior that the people of Israel were familiar with that would they would assume would be part of this kingdom were their uh, legalistic religious leaders the scribes and the pharisees and the rabbis and they were used to seeing these people have outward shows of pious behavior that labeled them as worthy that they would be the ones that stepped to the front of the line if there was a door to the kingdom here Um, And the pious behavior that they were used to was really visible. It was um, sacrifices and tithing and Sabbath keeping and following a million different rules in the Mosaic Law. But that's not who Jesus is um, opening the door to here. He is not calling superficial um, saints to his kingdom based on their outward show of religion so Jesus begins here with what we know as the beatitudes by answering that question that he knows is in their mind if you want to know who the citizens of the new kingdom are going to be this is his answer um It's not, he's not describing outward behavior, is he? He's describing an inward transformation of the heart. Um, The blessings that he lays out in these verses, we know is called the Beatitudes, they're famous. And The Greek word uh, that he uses here for blessing actually can be translated as happy. Maybe your, some of the older translations actually say happy instead of blessed. But I would argue this morning that what Jesus is really uh, speaks of here goes beyond feeling, uh, beyond what our culture would uh, be familiar with. It goes beyond a feeling of happy. Uh, Jesus is not talking about here people who um, have favorable circumstances that put a smile on their face. With the word blessed, what he's really doing is describing a state of being approved or favored by God. Having God's favor firmly placed on you. Um, Dr. Walvard, who uh, before his death was head of Dallas Seminary, uh, he has a, a great commentary on the book of Matthew. And this is how he described it. It was my favorite description of all the things that I read. He described it as indicating the smile of God indicating the smile of God and what could be more incredible in your life than knowing that you have God's smile of approval my little grandchildren whenever they're over and they're doing something you know they look up to see if I'm going to smile at them or frown at them if they're into something and they want God's smile of approval is certainly more worthy Jesus is describing um, here God's smile of approval. And the first smile of approval or blessing that he talks about is given to those who were poor in spirit now being poor in spirit is someone who understands that apart from god they can have no spiritual resources there's nothing in us that can conjure up a spiritual life apart from god himself in fact one theologian described it as being beggarly poor Beggarly poor, he calls it so desperately poor in ourselves when it comes to spiritual resources that we recognize that we have to have outside help from God Himself. Now the next smile of approval from God goes to those who mourn. And of course we all um, look at evil around us in the world and it makes us sad. But this is really talking about those people who desperately mourn and completely grieve by their own personal sin by their own personal sin that a day when they recognize that um, they have been in sin it drops them to their knees because they are so grieved now the third blessing or smile from God is for the meek now meekness um, is generally described as someone that's gentle and quiet and submissive and in our culture it's not a very valuable thing to be meek is it you wouldn't put it at the top of your resume if you're looking for a high-powered job but you know the scriptures actually describe Moses and Jesus both as being meek meekness is that heart quality that allows us to have willing submission to God think about it think about it only those who were have submission as part of their spirit, willingly go to their knees when God speaks to them. The next blessing is for those whose hearts desire is for personal righteousness, personal righteousness. And what their heart longs for um, is to conform to God's standard of right and wrong, not the world's standard of right and wrong or their own standard of right and wrong, but their heart really seeks to know What is God's standard of right and wrong? And then they want to live that out in their life. It's a passion. Her holiness to prevail in themselves and in the world. Someone told me recently about a young teenager um, that they had dropped off for a sleepover, and he had a backpack. And you know, they said, "Okay, did you get everything that you need in your backpack?" And and he replied, "You know, I just brought my Bible. I don't think I'm going to need anything else." And I thought, "Wow, that is a desire for personal righteousness when a teenager only." takes a bible with him Um, now these first four blessings are actually related to um, uh, characteristics of God and they talk about Um, our vertical relationship with God. The next four blessings we talk about are horizontal. They talk about, uh, they have to do with how our hearts treat others well rather than how our hearts reflect um, the character of God. And if you think back with me to when we studied the Ten Commandments, they did the same thing, didn't they? The first four Ten Commandments were vertical, the next six were horizontal. Jesus lays out Um, the hearts of those who will dwell in his kingdom in the exact same way. Those hearts connect vertically to God and horizontally to the people around them and live out the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others as yourself. So the next thing he speaks of as he talks about hearts that treat others well is the merciful. And the merciful actually demonstrate God's own mercy to those around them. And after that, Jesus talks about the pure in heart. And these are people whose inner motives stand up to scrutiny. Can you imagine if people were able to scrutinize your inner motives for everything you said and did, if it flashed up there on the screen, if you greeted someone with a smile and your motive for doing that was put up there? Sometimes it would be good and sometimes it wouldn't be all that good. Look at Psalm 24.3 on your verse sheet with me. This describes uh, the pure in heart. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now the next heart that relates to the people around them are the peacemakers. Um, These are those that reflect God's own character because they share God's heart for reconciliation. And these are people that work hard for harmony, work hard for harmony um, rather than discord. These are people that we should all have in our life because they forgive and forbear. Um, We should all be this person in other people's lives as well. The eighth and uh, final smile from God here that's part of uh, the, what the collection called the Beatitudes goes to those who endure and persevere when persecuted. Now, if you were to take these eight Beatitudes and compare them of these eight um Part actions of those who are going to reside in Jesus's kingdom and compare them to the Pharisees who think they're standing right at the door to enter into the kingdom of heaven they wouldn't measure up very well would they because the Pharisees were not poor in spirit they were not meek they were not certainly not mourning sin in themselves and others they had simply been trained in ceremonial outward displays of righteousness not inward transformation of the heart based on the character of God himself. Now, I want you to drop your eyes down to verse 11 here because this is a very interesting verse in this um, beginning of the Sermon of the Bound because it says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Um, And then verse 12 says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven For they so persecuted the prophets who went before you. Now this verse actually just expands that last uh, beatitude about being persecuted for righteousness but what it does is Jesus makes it personal for those people that are right there sitting at his feet. He's not talking here about generalities in the kingdom of heaven anymore. He's talking to them about them. Um, Now the Prophets were mistreated because they followed God. So when Jesus tells those that are sitting at his feet that they're going to be mistreated for following him, they know what he's telling them. They know that he is admitting to them I am God as well. I am the Messiah. I am king of kings. And just because the prophets were uh, the prophets were persecuted for following God, you will be following the Messiah and be persecuted as well. It has to be an aha moment on that side of that mountain for the people that were listening to him. I think they were poking each other and saying, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying he's God, and we will be persecuted for following him. Now, in our world today, profiling people is controversial, isn't it? And it's considered wrong when you um, uh, make a judgment about someone in an airport based on their nationality or their skin coloring. But I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think he's profiling. He's describing the hearts of the people who are going to populate his kingdom. This is what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are going to look at, look like, and the blessings of kingdom dwelling are going to be theirs. When you dwell in the kingdom, you are going to have the blessings of kingdom living, and those living in the kingdom are going to be comforted. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be called the sons of God. They're even going to see God himself, subjects of the King are going to know him personally. They're going to know him personally and have every single one of the blessings of kingdom living that he talks about here. But the keys of the kingdom are not going to be given to the Pharisees and the scribes who have outward shows of pious uh, religion. The keys to the kingdom come to those who have a new heart, to bow to the king of heaven a new heart that Israel desperately needs and Jesus is trying to point out to them Jesus is describing that to them here on the side of the mountain the prophet Jeremiah says this about Israel's need for a new heart Jeremiah 24:7 says and this is God I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord They shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Um, The nation of Israel is going to need a heart transplant, aren't they? Um, And a heart transplant is, in the medical world, um, in our real life, is long and arduous, and it's a risky journey. But in this kingdom that Jesus is offering to Israel, And actually, he's offered to each one of us in this room as well. Um, A transformed heart is pretty easy to come by, and it's risk-free. The transformed heart that Jesus is offering to Israel in the kingdom of heaven is risk-free because it comes from God himself. Can you imagine um, a heart transplant where they give you God's own heart? I think you can, because we all in this room have experienced that. When Jesus is our king and our Lord, we have had that heart transplant, haven't we? And our transformed hearts will reap these kingdom blessings. And those who miss the blessings because they decide to walk into their own kingdoms and follow different kings, that should break all of our transformed hearts. Now, Jesus moves on here as he's talking on the side of that mountain, and he just addresses those that he knows are going to be in the kingdom. Uh, He talks about um, salt and light. He calls them salt and light in verses 13 and 14. Uh, And he does that because the people that are in part of the kingdom of heaven are going to be a preserving force. They're going to be a shining light throughout corrupt cultures and societies of the world. Uh, we had a great discussion in the Leaders Small Group this morning about this, and everybody had such uh, incredible things to say. I hope your um, small group had a chance to discuss what it means to be salt and light as well. I saw a great example of it last Friday uh, with the March for Life. The March for Life associated with, um, Uh, with the uh, uh, anti-abortion movement. These were kingdom dwellers in the March for Life um, and they were standing up for the unborn in order to season this culture. We have a culture that has embraced um, abortion but uh, in the March for Life they were seasoning our culture with the flavor of truth and mercy and they were preserving righteousness. And when I um, saw the um, video feed on the TV about the march and the speakers. It was truly a light shining out to expose a lie, expose a lie about the ignorance that unborn babies are not babies. It was a perfect illustration of Jesus' words here in verse 13 and 14 Kingdom dwellers are going to be a preserving force and a transforming light in a corrupt world that gives God the glory. Okay, let's read a little bit more here together. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, So here Jesus presents himself as the Messiah and the king to the people. And as he does that, he wants them to know what he's not going to do. He's not going to abolish the law. He's not going to teach anyone else to do it. In fact, he stands on the authority of the law. It will never pass away until every tiny dot has been um, fulfilled and he has come to fulfill the law now what that means is that everything in the law all of God's words are going to come to fruition in their complete meaning in his new kingdom it's not the meaning of the rabbis or the pharisees but it's going to be God's complete meaning in the new kingdom The need for sacrifices that we studied week in and week out last semester in the tabernacle is a great example of that. Jesus didn't just come to abolish animal sacrifices that were in the tabernacle and the temple. He came to be the sacrifice. He came to be the sacrifice. Blood was the covering for sin and he came to be the blood that covered sin once and for all as the messiah he is going to comp- he completely fulfills the heart and soul of the law in ways that the people that are listening to him are really going to have difficulty understanding. Um, Theologian Warren Wiresby had a great example of this, fulfilling the law. He used the example of an acorn. He said, you know, you can take an acorn and smash it into a million pieces, um, and when you do that, um, you effectively end its purpose, don't you? But if you take an acorn and plant it in the ground and let it fulfill all it was meant to be, It becomes an oak tree. It becomes an oak tree. And that's what Jesus is going to do with the law. He's not going to abolish it. He is going to fulfill it. It's going to be everything that God ever meant for it to be. The king and his kingdom will give honor to the law in a way that um, Israel has never seen before. Now, along with um, complete fulfillment of the law here that he's... explaining to those disciples sitting at his feet uh, he also presents for them a new standard of righteousness a new standard of righteousness now that word righteousness is sometimes a little hard for me to grasp but as it's used in the scriptures what it means is character and conduct that conforms to um, the will of God Uh, and God's standard of righteousness uh, is about our inward life our inward thoughts and not just our outward actions although all of it is the complete package now the greatest standard of righteousness that Jesus's listeners and the nation of Israel was accustomed to was that of the scribes and the Pharisees um, and in verse 20 Jesus astounds his listeners here by telling them that the greatest standard of righteousness that they know the scribes and the Pharisees is not going to get them through the door to the kingdom of heaven. Um, Those who enter through that door to the kingdom of heaven are going to have to have a greater righteousness than even their greatest and best example of righteousness. Now I have to think that their heads are really spinning around backwards at this point because Jesus blows everything they know and think about righteousness here. So their first question um, as they sat down with Jesus had to have been, okay, how do we get into this great new kingdom? Now their question has to be, does anyone ever get into this kingdom? Um, The disciples uh, listening to Jesus talk about righteousness were probably confused and panicked with that thought. Who can ever get into the kingdom? But We can sit here this morning and we can answer that question for them, can't we? We don't have to be confused and panicked like they must have been when he blew away their only standard of righteousness because we know that the righteousness that is going to uh, open that door for all of us uh, to enter into heaven doesn't come from ourselves and our outward behavior, does it? It comes from God himself by faith through grace. Look at Romans 3.21 for me. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe— Paul wrote that, and he wrote this in Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith you know true righteousness as he says here doesn't come from the law it doesn't come from ourselves true righteousness is not if we go to church or come to this bible study or even serve in some great social justice ministry true righteousness is ours through faith in Christ alone that is the message that Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand Now, these last few verses of chapter 5 give give a picture to what he's talking about here. He talks about in these last few verses um, up until the end of chapter 5 what it looks like when you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He takes six illustrations of their strict interpretation of the law and he trust it with God's true and real intent of the law. You know one of the things I've always loved about Christ Chapel is one of our core values is Monday morning applicable. So when our pastors stand on this stage on Sunday and they teach the truth of the word to you um, they don't just give you rules and regulations. Um, What they give you is what does it look like in your life on Monday morning? Um, Jesus does that here. He doesn't just give them this strict rule of the law he expands these six illustrations so that they will know what righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees really look like so um, he takes the law to those sitting around them and shows them what god's true intent was for these six instances Uh, it's a new kingdom way of living they they are uh, hopefully listening carefully Uh, because in these verses down to verse 48 he uses the phrase six times you have heard it said meaning this is what you've been taught and by your rabbis and the pharisees and then he says but I say to you I say to you, and with those words, he's rejecting the traditions, he's rejecting the authority of the Pharisees, and he's clearly establishing his own authority as king of this new kingdom, that he's offering them with that shiny red bow. The kingdom truths that he teaches here counter the traditions that have been taught by the religious leaders for centuries. They actually live out the character and the attitudes of the eight Beatitudes. If you compare these back and forth, you will be able to see that it is the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn sin, the peacemakers, the merciful, the pure in heart that are gonna live these uh, portions of the law out the way they were intended. Every example goes beyond the rule here to God's heart intent of that rule. Now, we don't have time to look at every single one of these. We're going to skim through them just a little bit. But he starts with anger, and he talks about murder here. Look at verse 21. Um, It says, You have heard that it was said... First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Um, You you know, his thoughts here on anger are things that we um, all know. Uh, and, And the phrase that comes to my mind is, we need to deal quickly with anger don't we Uh, we need to be all about reconciliation we need to remember how anger disrupts relationships but even more than that in this passage he says it disrupts our worship too how many of you have ever had to sit in church next to your husband when you were furiously mad at him? Um, how, did you get much? Are your kids, you're mad at one of your kids and they're sitting next to you? Y- your heart does not worship, does it? It totally does not worship. We must deal quickly with our anger or there are going to be um, repercussions. He talks about being thrown in jail here. But we have repercussions to our anger um, physically, don't we? Sometimes. Times we begin to develop um, headaches or upset stomachs or whatever because we're so angry with someone in our life. Um, the underlying cause of many depressions is anger. If you speak to many counselors or therapists, they will discover Anger uh, is under depression. So his wisdom to us here, the kingdom truth he wants us to know, is there's more to anger than simply murder. Um, It does ruin. But actually, murder is a good word because it murders our relationships, doesn't it? It murders our physical health. It murders our relationship with God. Now, after um, anger, Jesus addresses lust and how it... Uh, interfaces with both adultery and divorce look at verse 27 with me you have heard that it said that you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the members of your whole body uh, one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body into hell and about divorce in 31 he said it was also said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery now When he's talking about lust and dismemberment here, there is no scriptural support for dismembering your body over um, lust. What he's really trying to do here is with this um, hyperbole, he's emphasizing that in the new kingdom, the severity of lust has to be recognized. It hasn't been recognized in the nation of Israel. In his new kingdom, it needs to be recognized. You know, sexual sin does begin with the eyes, doesn't it? And then it mulls itself around in the mind with impure thoughts King David in the scriptures is a great example of this, isn't he? That's how his sin with Bathsheba began, with lusting over um, her bath on a rooftop. And it ended up with the murder of her true husband. You know, the rabbis of Jesus' day were more inclined to see adultery really as just an external problem, an external problem. It was just the sin of stealing someone else's wife. But Jesus makes it very clear here that in his new kingdom, um, sexual relationships that take place in the brain are just as much a sin as those that take place in the bedroom. Um, He moves quickly here from talking about um, lust and adultery to talking about divorce. Um, Now, any time as a family we have a conversation about hard topics like divorce it can be a painful conversation because I think every single one of us in this room has probably been touched by divorce in some way it touched us personally or our children or our parents or even our best friends now, Jesus is not addressing here in this passage in Matthew every issue about divorce. There's more to be said about divorce at the end of Matthew, I believe, chapter 19, and Paul talks about divorce in Corinthians. So I don't want you to apply this limited Uh, teaching on divorce here although it is definitely truth it came out of Jesus's own mouth I don't want you to take this teaching on the divorce and apply it out of context and judge yourself or judge others Jesus is addressing Israel's future and he's addressing life in his future kingdom here so I would encourage you to do the same. If divorce has been part of your past, take this teaching as from Jesus as part of your future. Um, and you can also take Ted Kitchen's favorite verse with you, which is Romans um, 8.1. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, take these words into your future. Now, what Jesus is really trying to do with these words on divorce is unmuddy the waters that Israel and ancient cultures have been muddying for years when it comes to divorce and marriage and remarriage. You know, divorce began in ancient cultures simply as a man um, telling his wife to leave when he was displeased. Um, he could make her leave at any point in time with. Even without even her possessions and her opportunity for survival generally just depended on her ability to remarry. If she did not remarry, find another man that would take her in as a wife, she wouldn't have a house or food or any protection. Moses sought to correct that injustice that he had seen with the hard hearts of the men of Israel by uh, making it part of the Mosaic law. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. That divorce had to be formalized. You could no longer just say, I divorce you and make a wife leave. You had to go through the formal process of getting a formal certificate of divorce and giving it to um, your wife. Um, it provided some measure of protection for uh, the women of Israel from the hard hearts of the men. What we have to know as Jesus speaks here is that divorce was never part of God's plan for marriage. And certainly, it was not God's plan for Israel. When he speaks of new kingdom living here, he really rocks his listeners because he ends their casual view of divorce. Israel had come to have a very casual view of divorce and remarriage. He's trying to put an end of that into that because marriage was established in Genesis. We studied it all together as a lifelong union. And as Jesus offers a new way of living in his kingdom, he says we are reclassifying divorce here. It is no longer has a casual status in the kingdom of God. He recognizes that the marriage covenant can be broken by adultery, and that is the only way um, in this passage that he says you make, break the marriage co- uh, covenant. He's pointing out the serious ramifications of casual divorce here by connecting casual divorce to adultery. Because what he says happens is if the marriage covenant hasn't truly been broken and you casually divorce your spouse and then both of you remarry, you're both committing adultery because the original marriage covenant was not broken. Um, Jesus... His words on divorce here are meant to protect women, um, not to bash women. They're meant to protect children. They're meant to protect families. And they are meant to protect God's kingdom. As he reinstates God's plan, original plan for marriage, and puts away Israel's view that divorce is a casual opportunity in their life. Now, if any time we talk about divorce, it's troubling to you, Um, come see me or see Amy Foster, Lynn Kitchens we can share with you the rest of the passages on divorce now um, Jesus also addresses oath taking and retaliation here we don't have time to consider those what I want you to know as you read these scriptures is they are principles not rules the principle for oath taking is we don't usurp God's name and insert it into every one of our conversations we simply let our yes be yes and I know, be no. and the principle behind um, retaliation um, is that uh, we don't um, we don't vindicate everything that happens to us in our life. We are long suffering. Someone this morning said, "This is a scripture that talks about fighting fair." What we want to do is never escalate a conflict. And that's his principle of retaliation here. Never escalate a conflict. But um, we're going to finish up here with the final uh, teaching that he has on for the nation of Israel in verse 43. Read that with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on evil and on good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The rabbis had added this portion about hate your enemies to the Mosaic law, it wasn't there originally, Uh, but Jesus is not gonna let it stand in his new kingdom. He is gonna take it out. For kingdom dwellers who are gonna be sons of God, righteousness means you must persist in love even when it seems unreasonable and unlikely. Loving others, both the good, the bad, the just, and the unjust follows God's own example. And actually, it is a true measure of godliness and maturity. We're not godly if we're not doing it God's way, are we? Charles Spurgeon actually says it better than I can say it. He says, we do not merely cease to hate and then abide in a cold neutrality. But we love where hatred seemed inevitable. We bless where our old nature bids us curse. And we are active in doing good to those who deserve to receive evil from us. Where this is carried out, men wonder, respect, and admire the followers of Jesus. When Jesus exhorts his followers to be perfect in verse 48, what he's really talking about here is maturity. This Greek word translated perfect here also means completeness and maturity. And he ends this passage on love with that Exhortion to maturity because it's a mature love that loves its enemies and prays for them. It's a mature love that causes others to notice and respect and admire his followers. You know, for the last two semesters as we studied Exodus, we talked about how God's presence in the midst of Israel um, caused others uh, to notice they were different. It caused others to notice that they had a God that protected them and cared about them and changed their lives. Jesus finishes these six illustrations of righteous living in his kingdom and he exhorts his disciples to a maturity that even loves enemies. He's doing the exact same thing as we saw in Exodus. He's setting a new kingdom, a new standard of kingdom living that are going to show the world around kingdom dwellers that they're different, that they have a God that is different. And when each of us as citizens of his kingdom love others well, we not only fulfill... um, Uh, the message to love our enemies we tell the world that we are his disciples look at John 13 34 on your verse a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I has loved you you are also here to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another that's how we tell the world we're his disciples it's a new king A new kingdom, a new standard of kingdom living. Pray with me. Father, the truth of your word is real. And we just ask that it would go deep in our hearts and we would have transformed hearts that allow us to step into your kingdom. I thank you for these women, their faithfulness to you. And I pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks.